Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Robin Powers, lives with a rare connective tissue disorder. In this conversation, we discuss how the diagnosis of this and other rare conditions might be made earlier and how healthcare could better respond to patients with rare disease. Here to tell her story is Robin Powers. Robin, I'm delighted to welcome you to the Health Design Podcast. It is fantastic to have the opportunity to spend time with you. I want to start the conversation where I think we both agreed was a very important point, the point at which you were diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Do you want to say something about that? Originally, they just said, we don't know what's wrong with you. We're just going to treat the pain. And I said, well, I don't give up on myself, so I will find the answer. So I went on an odyssey of my own, and I found a geneticist. And I didn't know that, like, uh, how to get referrals or anything because I was 13 at, the age, at, the, at this age. So I found a geneticist, and he agreed with me that I had Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. But my original doctor said, there's no way that you can have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's too rare. Although it's kind of more common of a rare disease, it's just commonly underlooked. So it was just interesting that at the age of 15, I then went and presented him a document, slapped it on the table, and I was like, all right, bam, here's my proof. Because it took me two years to do, so it was like a lot of work. Like I'm living in a body with the disease, which does give me the benefit of understanding a little bit more, especially if I've taken the time to educate myself. I ended up getting the diagnosis, which is still on my list of diagnoses because I have a few different big baddies, as I call them, are like really serious diseases. They could be genetic or they can express themselves later in life. But chronic diseases are very impactful in your life. So now that I have got about four or five really bad ones. What was it that you were presenting to your primary care doctor at the time? At the time with my primary care physician, this is after my knee dislocated in my sleep. So I was 13 years old. And I was really excited about a biology exam because I'd studied so very hard for it. And my knee dislocated my sleep, but I just woke up with it dislocated. And I didn't know what to do, honestly, because I was very young. And I was like, what do I do? Thinking, what do I do? And I was like, well, we could wait to go to the hospital or I could just click it back in myself, which is not, I would never tell somebody they should probably do that. But that's what I did because I didn't really know what else to do. I was 13. So I just kind of clicked it back in, and then I went on to my biology exam that day, and I got an A, and I went on my way. When I went to the doctors, I was like, so my knee dislocated, and I did go to a specialist, but they told me that I would grow out of it, and they seemed very uncertain of themselves, very unconfident. So I said, well, I do believe that you gave me some correct information because you diagnosed me with hypermobility syndrome because of the moderate to severe knee dislocation, but he thought that I would grow out of it no matter what. I may grow out of it and I may not grow out of it, even though I was very young, I already kind of had that knowledge that like, just because you're saying that I'm going to grow out of it doesn't mean that every single patient would grow out of it. Now they've connected that hypermobility syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome hypermobility on the same spectrum. But this was before that time. So I had to show it do with the other systems of my body. And that's why it's the systemic disease of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It takes about 10 to 15 years for most people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, once they present with symptoms, to actually be diagnosed. Yeah. So you dislocated your knee. What other features of Ehlers-Danlos were you presenting at the time? 
So at the time I had really bad headaches. I had cluster headaches. I had migraine headaches. And then also I had tension headaches. So those are a few different neurological things. Also, there's a problem with my heart where I have a heart murmur, but it's not something that would be dangerous, but it's just something that commonly presents in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome because normally we have minor cardiopathy presentations, but it's just a way of doing the diagnostics because they see if there's something wrong with your heart, like in any way, they see that, well, since you have a connective tissue disease, if it's not too severe, then they're still leaning on the side of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. If it's more severe, they'd probably be more like Marfan Syndrome. So I had the minor heart murmur, so they took that down as some diagnostic proof. And then the neurology-wise, since I had um, migraine headaches, and then since they did an MRI and a CT scan, they could see that I had some of the bony malformations that they're commonly found in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I had problems with my GI, so my gastrointestinal system. I had very severe acid reflux to the point where it was the silent type. So I didn't actually even know, but I had a, a in my esophagus, I had a huge ulcer, which I didn't even know about. And then that was presenting also with gastroparesis. So there was a problem with my stomach digesting food and like the transit time of your GI. And then also I was showing signs of mast cell. So, and then also, uh, and then dysautonemia. So dysautonemia is like a huge thing. They call it kind of like the tricky trifecta. Evidence that if you have those three things, with the, the Brighton score, then that person likely has hypermobility Ehlers Danlos syndrome. When you presented to your primary care physician that morning, having dislocated yes. your knee, was any of this apparent? Had he got any clues that there were problems with your heart, problems with your GI tract, or anything else? The evidence had already been done, so he, he should have had the records of it, but he was just very dismissive of the idea of a rare disease. He was changed by that experience, and he told me that it changed him as a doctor. Thinking about it now, in terms of doctors who haven't got to this point or haven't had this experience, what is your advice to doctors generally with rare disease? Because we do see patients with a bunch of symptoms that don't make sense, but you think, well, we'll focus on the hypermobility and we'll call it hypermobility. And you're almost blind to all the other evidence that's been put right. in front of you. Is that something that we should be looking at more closely? I believe that the best approach with that kind of situation would be to look at a macro and a microscopic level. So when you're thinking as a doctor, if you think in the mindset of like, if you're a cardiologist, if you ignore, I guess, that you're a cardiologist and you remember that there's other systems of the body and you think about what's going around the body, and then you also think microscopically, so like the individual systems, then I think that doctors would have a lot easier time of connecting the dots, because they say when you can't connect the issues, think connective tissues. Is that something you came up with, or is that something well known? It's just something that I thought of when I was talking with somebody. I also said once, I wish that they had rearranged my life to EDS instead of having EDS rearrange my life for me, because they do that now. They help make the home more accommodating to the person that has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and they make it more spacious and they let them have like a wheelchair and stuff to help them get around with. But when I was younger, this wasn't stuff that was really done. It would have been easier if it had happened at the start, but now they commonly do that at the start at least. It feels like a chore sometimes to wake up knowing that I'm chronically ill every single day. You know, it's kind of, it's interesting because I always think, what is it like to be healthy? What does it actually mean? I don't know what it means to be healthy. 
I always wonder, is anybody actually truly 100% healthy? Because I feel like everybody has to have some type of something going on, but maybe that's just from my perspective, always being sick. I want to focus a little bit more on that experience that you had where you said at the very start, before we started recording this call, that you often have two minutes to make your case to a doctor and you have Mm -hmm. a solution to getting that right. What was your solution? My solution was basically practicing it kind of like an elevator pitch. I'm having nerve pain that's shooting up from my ankle all the way up to my knee. And then that's pretty short. And then the doctor can understand what I'm talking about. They can understand that I'm describing nerve pain because I say it's very sharp and a stabby kind of feeling. It's not dull and achy. It's just very stabbing and it's very disruptive to my life. So since you only get about two minutes, you kind of have to know what to say. Because if you just tell a doctor, I heard everywhere, they can't really help you because either they think, well, you could be lying or I just can't help you because you're not giving me anything to really work with by just saying I heard everywhere. Because then you don't know, is it nerve pain? Is it bone pain? Is it centralized? Is it systemic? You, you don't really know. So that's what, how I, I noticed that in my own experiences that if I was to say I heard everywhere that I would get nowhere. It was possible to set up a service where you can practice what you're going to say to your doctor before okay. you, go, you get there. Do you think that has any legs? I think that actually would be a great thing. If we had a doctor that's willing to go out into the community, into the world like you are, and help make things better, we could have maybe a practice session, like we could do something through a nonprofit and have like a doctor with a patient and then have them practice back and forth. And then I think that that would actually help the doctor and the patient at the same time. And then if we included somebody like an advocate, they could also help navigate it a little bit just to help both sides know the best way to respond. Because like sometimes doctors say the darndest things. What I'm actually going to do a podcast of my own on, is going to be called Physicians Say the Darndest Things. Because I've heard some of the most ridiculous responses in medicine. Once I heard after breaking my arm, I can't fix it because I didn't break it. And I said, well, then you have a very questionable past, present, and future in medicine. What are you doing if you're only fixing things that you broke? Because like I didn't know what else to say to... I can't fix it because I didn't break it. It's like, well, I didn't break it on purpose. You know what I mean? I fell while carrying groceries. I was like, I just want a cast, please. I didn't want to go back to that doctor because he said the most darndest thing. I kind of want to find a way of vetting physicians to see, are you in this for the right reasons? Or are you just in this because you want to make money? Because if you're in this because you want to make money, there's already enough physicians in there that want to make money. So I want to find a way of, finding physicians that want to be helpful, that want to do this for the right reasons because they want to help people feel better. They want to help them achieve their best of well-being that we can give them with the tools that we have available in our society. So I think that everyone deserves that, no matter if you're a citizen or not. Healthcare is a human right. Being healthy should be a human right. And having your best of well-being should be a human right. So if we did something like you just said, that would work out very well to help. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. We're here to find solutions and solutions mm-hmm. that we can put into place without waiting for 
healthcare to reorganize itself. One of the right. solutions that you've come up with, which I love, is the idea of practicing what you're going to say and reflecting with somebody on what might be helpful when describing your symptoms to somebody. One of the issues around that is that you might be talking to an advocate in a particular condition because that's what you think you've got. But in fact, that may be misleading because it may be some other condition and you maybe need to talk to some other advocate. My solution is that I always think macroscopically. I always think that's my always my starting point is I have to look at things from like I'm a giraffe that can see everything so that I make sure that I'm not mistaking this for something else. I always think to myself, am I asking the right question? Because I feel like that's the best thing that you can ever ask yourself is, am I asking the right question? What about from the patient's side? That's a really good way of framing it. Am I yeah. asking the right question? So when you go to see your doctor, you've got to ask yourself, am I asking the right question? What advice do you have in that regard? I would still think to myself, am I describing this in a way in which they can understand? So I do always ask myself, am I describing what I'm trying to relay properly or am I describing something else? So that's why I kind of practice before I go because I'm like, okay, so I have this pain management appointment coming up and I want to make sure that we address these symptoms that have not been managed in any way so that I make sure that I practice, you know, talking about those symptoms so that I don't get off track. Because a doctor may ask a question and a patient may think that it means something else. They may not understand the language patient to be like, am I answering the right question? You know, and am I answering in a way in which it's transferable to the doctor to understand how they can best help me? I also wonder whether the, the very fact of asking a question is a bad question, because sometimes what you want is for the patient to have this time and the space to tell their story in the way that they want to tell their story, and eventually becomes clearer, even after two minutes, exactly yes. what they're describing. When I start with the approach of the two-minute elevator approach thing, they kind of get more hooked in the ideas of, okay, if I spend a few more minutes, we will get somewhere because we've already gotten somewhere in the two minutes. So normally my appointments don't last for two minutes, but I've got about two minutes to grab their attention. In my appointment, I think, okay, if this is a new doctor, I've got about two minutes to grab their attention. And once I grab their attention, then you know they're more willing, I don't know, to spend a few more minutes because I should spend at least 15 minutes per appointment, honestly. But that's getting harder with all the extra paperwork that they've burdened physicians with. But we're not talking about what happens five minutes into the consultation. We're talking about that first two to four minutes when the patient is coming. And you really need to know what you're dealing with. There's no point prescribing yes. an opiate if that's not what's required. Exactly. What's right. required is for you to understand precisely what the patient is, is troubled by. Exactly. I love how you just said that because you just said exactly what I always think because I always think if I have nerve pain, there's different medications that are very effective for nerve pain, but opiates are not very effective for nerve pain. So that's why I always thought if you tell the doctor, I heard everywhere, you're telling them almost nothing because they don't even know if it's nerve pain that's hurting because like I have nerve pain on my, the surface of my skin from polyneuropathy. I would say, well, I have this burning sensation on like the top layers of my skin. It's sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right. But that's how I did it in the first one to two minutes. And then they understand that I had nerve pain and then they prescribed me something for nerve pain. We need to find a way to educate the patients so that they know how to explain what their symptoms are in a way that the doctor will understand. 
and then I guess educate the doctor to maybe understand some lingo that the patient may say that's still going to be indicative of the problem, but maybe that they're not as quite as used to hearing. Because I mean, the patient's going to describe it in the best way they can, and most patients are not as experienced with clinical knowledge as me, so I'm not exactly sure how they would say it, but you know, is it stabby? Is it constant? Does it ever go away? Does it wake you up at night? Does it stop you from your activities? You know, does it radiate all over the body or does it start in one location? Because that's kind of the way that I think about things when I'm trying to either explain a symptom of mine or trying to explain a symptom of someone else's when I'm advocating for them. Because sometimes people have problems communicating to the doctor. The patient will say something and then I'll translate it for the doctor and then I'll say it and that'll be our first two minutes. The first two minutes will be the patient saying what they're saying and then me translating it. And then in that two minutes, then the doctor has a better, clearer picture. And I would actually come in with a differential diagnostic already written out just to see if they would match. Because I just want to see if I could, I don't know, match what they were going to say. Hook their attention and then help them zone in on the problem and then come up with the underlying problem that's causing the pain. I'm like, don't just give me an opiate just because, or don't just give me Xanax just because you think that I'm having a panic attack. I'm not necessarily having a panic attack. I might be flustered because it feels like I couldn't get through to the doctor, but that doesn't mean that I'm having a panic attack. Robin, if we were to meet in another five years, where do you think you will be in terms of your work? What do you hope to achieve in the next five years? I'm hoping to achieve finishing my master's degree in biology at Buffalo State College after getting my undergraduate in biochemical pharmacology of rare diseases. I would like to go into research and development after. Robin Powers, it's been a joy spending time with you. You're clearly a powerhouse of energy and ideas. We wish you all the very best and let's connect again very soon. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. It's truly been an honor to be a guest. I feel very honored. So thank you very much. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.